Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your questions, your inquiries, your concerns, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab. I got a ton of comments. I got a lot of good comments, and I am excited. It is Friday night at the moment, and Pablo Carreño Busta is uh, trying to serve out the match against Jack Draper in the second set. So uh, I've decided to stop watching that match, and I've hit the record button. Um, just to just to timestamp where we're at in uh, the Canada Masters. So let's just jump right into it. First one is from Flint. Oh, wait, never mind. Here's a question, is how this comment starts, which is hilarious. After all of the top three seeds have gone out in Montreal in their first match, do you think that tournaments will be much harder to predict post the big three, or will there be players who rise to the occasion and dominate? Also, what ranking do you think Draper has the potential to reach? Well, the first part, I guess there's two different questions there. Right now, I mean, yes, there is going to be less dominance, you'd think, consistently amongst a couple of players in the future. And by nature, yes, that will make everybody's predictions wrong more often. Everybody. I mean, you can look at the women's side the last three years versus the men's side. Anybody will have more success picking the men because it's been between a couple guys and nobody had Elena Rybakina winning Wimbledon. A lot of people had Djokovic. So that's just kind of how how it goes. In terms of what I see for the men's game in terms of predictability uh, several years down the road, I can't see it getting to a point similar to what the women's game has been since 2019. I mean, Osaka's won back-to-back on two occasions, right? So there's been that. But other than that, it's been pretty much sheer unpredictability. I don't see the men's game getting there. I, uh, But at the same time, the only player I see who has the potential to achieve the consistency of the big three, that's not to say he's going to do it. But he has the potential, I think, to do it is Carlos Alcaraz. Everyone else is clearly not at that level and I don't think has the potential to be at that level right now. So uh I no, I mean, look, and let's be let's be honest also. There were four guys, and I know people get mad whenever somebody says big four, some people get mad. Uh there were there were four guys who actually were consistently at the very end of majors almost every single time. Like Andy Murray, say what you will about his ability to actually win majors, which was only three times. Say what you will about that. He was pretty much an automatic quarterfinal, tons of semifinals. Um, so that that even added to the predictability. Uh, then the second part of this is, uh, what ranking do you think Draper has the potential to reach? So, a lot of questions about Jack Draper, first of all, who's someone who all year I've been fielding a lot of mailbag questions about, which is great. I, I love that. I'm not sure exactly why it, it, I don't know. It seems disproportional. Like other players have had the, 
dominance on the challenger level that Draper has achieved this year. Uh, other players have done that in the past. Like last year, Sebastian Baez did that. Uh, Talon Griegspoor had a run like that. Benjamin Bonzi. But Draper uh, seems to have a lot more interest behind him. I don't know if he's British. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's the reason. But uh, he has. He's very good. I'm, uh, I think, very highly of Jack Draper. And uh, here's why. And I guess I'll talk about the match that I just watched him play also. Um, there are not a lot of holes to pick there. He has gotten way quicker in the last couple of years. When I first watched him, he looked a little slow to me. And I thought we were looking at a player who was going to be hyper-reliant on offense because he just wasn't moving laterally very quickly. But he's a, he's a good athlete for his size. That said, he's got a lot of weight on him. He's got good height. And all of that creates a, a pretty good serve. You know, he's a tall lefty with a big serve. And then off of the ground, he's got a very heavy forehand. I like the the margin on it. It does have, again, a lot of weight of shot. And the backhand is uh, is also really super solid. It's not huge. Uh, it doesn't have the purity of some of the very best backhands in the world. But it's definitely a shot that uh, he can punish you on if, if you give him something to attack on that wing. And uh, it's very, very consistent. He's, ver he's really consistent off the ground. Uh, this match against Carreño Busta was interesting because it turned into a grind fest. And in a way, I was really impressed with Draper because he was doing pretty well trading with PCB, trading from the baseline, which is hard. At the same time, why are you why are you having to play like that against Carreño Busta? You know, that that's that's PCB's game. So why why is the match looking like that? And although it was close, again, that's the impressive part. The impressive part is that Draper was playing a close match like that, you know, with with the really high rally lengths and uh, got very physical and a lot of just neutral baseline trading, a ton of it in that match. So I guess what did kind of concern me about the performance is off the ground, the forehand is heavy, but it's spinny, and it just, I do want him to, to figure out how to flatten out the forehand and get it through the court a little bit better, um, and also get a transition game, because between him not being able to really come forward with comfort and him not being able to flatten out the forehand, it's going to be hard to finish the points with the two-hander. It just felt like he he didn't have a way to get through PCB's wall, and it's a wall. Like, he's just never going to miss, so it's a wall. And he didn't have a way to just finish through it. So in that sense, he was lacking a little bit of offensive potency, which was interesting to see. Uh, because he does hit really big, but but he just was missing a little bit, you know, that 10%. Uh, what's the highest ranking I can see him? I mean, at this point in his career, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to say, I'm going to give him three in the world at this point in his career, right? I don't have a lot of data. So far, so good. 
I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to lowball a guy at that stage in his career. So I'm going to say three in the world. And the reason why it's not one in the world um, is because despite the fact that he's gotten a lot quicker, I either need to see crazy offensive skill set or I need to see great movement. And I don't see either. I see like a good offensive skill set and I see like good movement. So that's why it's three and not higher. From Sarah Gates, uh, with Serena's own unique way of retiring, how do you think each of the big three will choose to say goodbye? Try to end on a high after a slam. Only tell us after their last match that they're done playing. Go on a farewell tour. I think it's a good insight into who they are as players and how they view their game. I think it's better insight into who they are as people uh, because... As players, I don't know that that's going to really affect how they choose to retire. I think I have some theories actually here. Now, I'm not sure about Novak. I don't know. I just can't. I'm not sure. But for Rafa, I would be surprised if he didn't minimize the fanfare to the best of his abilities. In fact, I would be almost surprised if... like. I would think maybe maybe he would do something like one tournament one tournament say this is my last tournament and allow everybody to kind of pay attention to him and you know give him the ceremonial treatment that uh that they would give him. I really don't think Rafa would want to spend a lot of time in that farewell spotlight. Um and just, you know, I it doesn't seem like him. Roger, I think, will do it in a very, very entrepreneurial, fan-friendly way. I would I would not be surprised if Roger actually went on his own tour, his own retirement tour, separate from the ATP tour. I would not be surprised as, you know, someone who's who's done a lot of charity events um, under the teammate umbrella. If I'm Federer, I might say, well, let me give everybody a chance to see me play one last time, and I'm just going to play exhibitions all around the world and have that kind of retirement, you know, goodbye. So I think we might see two retirements from Federer. I think we might see the retirement from the tour, but then perhaps we see kind of a an extra exhibition farewell tour from Yago after those early exits of the top seeds is Nadal now an overwhelming favorite for year end number one I wouldn't go that far I would say though he's a favorite he's probably the favorite for uh, getting to world number one by uh, after the U.S. Open, then you just don't know because Rafa could always just shut it down. In fact, it feels somewhat likely that he's going to shut it down. I just think with all of the issues that he's had staying healthy on hard court and all of the issues he's had with his foot, does it really make sense to even play that part of the calendar anymore if you're Nadal. And like part of me hates that and it saddens me because it's literally a part of the tennis calendar and if someone like Nadal isn't going to play it, then part of me is like, why is this 
a thing at all. Like, why don't we all just pack it up? Uh, because like, it's just, it's no fun having a time of year that isn't worthwhile for, for everybody, the fans, the players, the media, everybody. And, you know, I, I just think if you're in a doll, I don't know if the fall indoor fall season really rises to the level of importance that makes it worth playing on that foot. I'm not sure. So in that sense, I think he could lose the number, the, the chance to be year at number one. Uh, but uh, the situation that we have right now is uh, Medvedev is going to be at 6,885 points at the end of the week. Nadal's going to be at 5,620. Um, Nadal is not defending any points in Cincinnati. Medvedev is defending semifinal points. So it's probably going to be very close after Cincinnati, as long as Nadal does all right. Um if Nadal wins Cincinnati and Medvedev doesn't reach the quarters, he'll already jump to number one uh, before the U.S. Open. Um, and then Medvedev is defending championship points at the U.S. Open. And um, Nadal, Nadal is defending zero unless I am missing some sort of COVID 50% point kind of thing. I don't know if I'm if I'm missing something there, but obviously Nadal didn't play the US Open last year. So can't be defending too many points. Yeah, I think he'll be number one after the US Open. If I were to guess, um it's it's looking like that's a strong possibility. From VTech, uh what do you make of Titi Pass trying to hit Draper with a ball in Montreal? He didn't even do anything to him, unlike Curios at Wimbledon. Not that it warrants that behavior anyway. I think deliberately trying to hit your opponent when you have other variable options to continue the point should be penalized. <laughs> yeah, he didn't do anything. You're right. Uh, I, I don't know what's wrong with him. Like, so we've done this three times now. He did this playing Alcaraz where Alcaraz was at the net and Tsitsipas... To me, it looked like he had very few options and the ball was very low and he just took a total whack right at Alcaraz's, you know, head slash chest and Carlos just ducked out of the way and the ball hit the back fence. And I actually defended uh, Pass for it, although I said he should have apologized immediately. He apologized like the next, the next game before the next game. So the apology was like three minutes after. So that was my initial take when Tsitsipas did that to Alcaraz. Then I criticized Stefanos very heavily when he did it against Kyrgios. Now he's done it again, and I I feel almost silly for defending him for it the first time because, yeah, it's like it almost leaves me speechless. I don't understand how he can think that this is a good idea. And um, he lost this point, by the way. If you didn't see it, he had like the simplest overhead of all time. And Draper was like, <laughs> it is kind of funny, um, but also just really inexcusable. Uh, Draper was like off the court outside of the single sideline and Tsitsipas hit it right at Draper who was standing out and the ball went out because instead of hitting it anywhere else, he hit it at Draper. And the ball went out. 
So, like, first of all, losing those points is pathetic if you're, you know, on Tsitsipas's part because these are easy points that you should win, and you're losing it. Why? Because you're trying to peg the guy. Um, and and you're right. I mean, Draper didn't do anything. So why are you mad? Are you, you're so angry with yourself that you have to take it out on your opponent by hitting a ball at them? Okay. Now let's get to the second part. It should be penalized. You can't do that because that would require someone to decide if he was trying to do it or not. And there's just no world where that can be pulled off with success. It can't. So it can't be penalized. The other the other part about it is, um, you know, I, I do think as long as the player is ready and defend like if a pro is ready and defending themselves i i do think it's slightly overstated the danger of it is slightly overstated right meaning Paz wasn't going to injure draper I, and people might disagree with me honestly i i take a lot of heat when i say this i've said this in the past and people have 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 given me some flack for it but like professional tennis players when tennis balls approach them, or really anyone, uh, they're not going to let it hit them in the head in all, unless they're completely not protecting themselves or ready. Other than that, they're not going to, you know, they have a racket in their hand. They're going to defend themselves and, you know, they have good reactions. So they're probably not going to like let it hit, hit them in the eye socket. And if it hits them anywhere else, it's just not going to injure someone. So um, I don't think we need to fully clutch our pearls about this. We don't need to be like, Tsitsipas could have injured. Tsitsipas is going to hurt someone. I don't think we need to fully go that far. Uh, but it is like, it makes him look so bad. So bad. It makes him look like a child. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, it's like, come on, an eight-year-old can do better than to not try to hit their opponent with tennis balls when they get a sitter. Come on now. So yeah, I guess I I took I take the middle ground. It's like totally pathetic behavior, but also it's not dangerous. It's kind of my opinion. All right, Josh. Early exits are next gen and beyond players not what we thought they'd be, or is it just a regression to the mean? The big three in prime Murray would just make the quarters or better at the majority of big tournaments as though it was nothing. Now we see all of the top seeds out in their first match of a Masters 1000, something unthinkable 10 years ago. I think it's regression to the mean. Everyone who's followed the big three so far, they are, they are not the big three. They're not. They're not that. So, I think we've kind of established that part of it, uh, and we need to be prepared that they are not going to bring the consistency that the big three brought because they are not that. Uh, that said, I mean Medvedev has been um, at the hard court, at you know this time of year at hard court events. Rarely has he lost as early as he did here, and you know the fact that he had to play Kyrgios, and Kyrgios was one of the few players who has the talent to implement the style that he implemented, you know, serve and volleying against Medvedev like that, uh, you know, that was a draw defeat. 
you know, that had little to do with Medvedev's shortcomings, and it was really, you know, more about drawing Titipas. But uh, for the others, you know, for the others, certainly, you know, Titipas on hard court, you know, there are bad losses. Uh, there, there are certainly bad losses, and um, why, why am I blanking on on the other upset? Oh, Alcaraz, yeah, and and Alcaraz is 19 years old, so uh, there's that. Uh, Medezio says, uh, why does Titipas struggle more on faster courts compared to Berrettini? They have the same strengths, and the backhand return is a weakness of both. So. It's a little bit different on the backhand. Berrettini's backhand doesn't get rushed. That's not the problem. In fact, when you give Berrettini's backhand less pace, it's better. Sorry. Let me be more clear. When you give Berrettini's backhand less pace, the backhand performs worse. Berrettini doesn't like to generate on his backhand. In fact, he does so very poorly. If you give him pace, Berrettini actually hits his backhand better. Tsitsipas is the opposite. His backhand gets rushed. He doesn't have enough time to produce it. Uh, but if you give him plenty of time on the backhand, he actually hits it very well. Can hit it pretty heavy, pretty hard. It's good. Um, so while you might look at the backhand return and the backhand in general as a weakness, it is very different. Uh, Berrettini obviously has the phenomenal slice that he can use if he... Uh, is lacking time on the backhand. He can use that on the return of serve as well, although he usually does not. Um, and uh, a lot of the faster courts also help Berrettini slice more than it would uh, Tsitsipas. So for Tsitsipas, the backhand gets worse on a quick court. For Berrettini, it really doesn't, if that makes sense. From Juan... Should the top three seeds be worried for the U.S. Open? Medvedev was playing too passive. Alcaraz had his chances and blew them. And Tsitsipas played too fast for his own good. I don't think Medvedev should be worried because of what I just said. I thought it was a, a draw. That's a, that's a defeat that was produced by the draw. Um, should Alcaraz be worried about the U.S. Open? Yes. I mean, he just needs to play less. You know, if he doesn't start to play a little bit less erratic, he is in danger. You know, he is going to be someone who is in danger of being upset. So in that sense, I guess, yes, you you sort of worry. Although I, I just feel like this year has been such a so far beyond what Alcaraz ever even expected to begin to achieve. I mean, his goal was to make the top 10, that it's difficult to readjust our expectations now for Carlos Alcaraz as if, you know, oh, well, he's the three seed, so he's supposed to make the semifinals of the U.S. Open. Well, yeah, his seeding says that, but does his career arc, does his career trajectory suggest that he should really be expected to do that? That's a little bit less clear. Uh, but yeah, I think Alcaraz has reason to be concerned. Uh, you know, clearly he's lost um, a little bit of that uh, air of invincibility and the confidence and the nerves have started to come into play. So yes, uh, for Tsitsipas, he should also be worried. Yeah, he should be worried. Uh, the That was a poor performance. That was very bad against Draper. I mean, you look at, in the second set tiebreak, you look at four 
consecutive unforced errors to lose that second set tie break. Uh, you look at the number of forehand unforced errors in general, attacking forehands that Tsitsipas missed. It's a major concern, especially given the fact that his results haven't exactly inspired confidence throughout the year. And now you look at the way the U.S. Open has been playing, the speed of the courts that the U.S. Open um, has demonstrated since 2020. And you have questions about his ability to return serve effectively, his ability to protect his backhand effectively. Um, yeah, so I, I think Alcaraz and Tsitsipas, there's reason for concern, but Medvedev, not so much. From Tula Girl, do you think Alcaraz's mental struggle started at the French? I was starting get, to get a whiff of heightened nerves when he played Vinolas and also Zverev. I hope he can slowly get better with this and become more consistent, as I think he is my favorite player to watch. Uh, I think that is probably, yes, that's probably when Alcaraz's mental struggles uh, began. I do, I, I think that's a fair theory. I'm not, I can't say that for sure. And in fact, uh, Carlos, I guess, would refute that since he said this, this match in Canada was the first time he really felt like the nerves got the best of him. Uh, but it would also kind of just make sense. I mean, Carlos Alcaraz in Madrid, yes, there was a lot of hype around him. Yes, he was playing great tennis. However, he comes into a match against Nadal, underdog. He comes into a match against Djokovic, underdog. It wasn't until the French when, when Alcaraz got to the point where the expectation was that, not just that he was going to you know, go deep, but he comes into that match against Zverev, and he's the favorite. So I, I'm pretty sure, unless I'm completely forgetting. I'm, I believe the betting odds is what I'm referring to, by the way. I'm, this is not a subjective thing. Um, I believe the betting odds made him the favorite. So it wasn't until the French where I think that really became uh, the case. And players know. Like, players know if they're the favorite or not. They, I think, I'm pretty sure they have a pulse on that. Uh, from Joseph, thanks for being a member. Hi, Gil. Uh, my question is about the one-handed backhand. In my opinion, it's the most beautiful shot in tennis. What do you think is the near future? What? Wait, what do you think the near future of that shot will be? Will there be more new top 20 players in the near future with the one-handed backhand apart from Musetti, Tsitsipas, and Shapovalov? I am a bit worried that even the dominance of Federer has not inspired more pros to have one. Great fan of your show. Appreciate it. Um... I would not be worried about the future of one-handed backhands. I would not. Um, there is still a big advantage in the weight of shot department. You still get way more topspin on a one-handed backhand. And because of that, I still think that a lot of players are going to see the benefit of that and feel like as a modern baseliner... Uh, and an aggressive baseliner, the one-hander gives me the ability to do more damage from the back of the court. Now, uh, I just think it's important that these players also have a block return and a, a strong slice backhand and hopefully have, you know, kind of a quicker stroke production, although that's very difficult for the one-hander to kind of cope and manage the weaknesses of having a one-handed backhand. But I really don't see any signs that that is going extinct. From Andrew, do you think Nadal will try to lose in the quarters or semis of Cincinnati to give himself more time to rest for the U.S. Open? Uh, no, I do not see that. First of all, I don't think that's 
there's a bone in Nadal's body that gives him the ability to step on a tennis court and not try to win. But also, uh, you have a week before the U.S. Open for a reason, and I think that week offers plenty of rest for uh, for the players. I don't really think anybody carries fatigue from Cincinnati into the U.S. Open unless you are just unless you're worn down in a really kind of larger context. From Jamie, why don't you like Casper Ruud? He's a good player with a fantastic game and attitude. Why don't I like Casper Ruud? I don't know. Uh, I that's not true. I I like Casper Ruud. I especially like him as a personality. I've always felt that he's got a great sense of humor, and he's someone who is fantastic in all his interviews. Says really interesting things. Um, I I find his upbringing pretty fascinating. Um, you know, he's just not he's not an attention seeker. But if you actually seek out the personality of Rude, you're 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 rewarded quite nicely. He is a really easy guy to root for. And uh yeah, he's obviously a good player. So um I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. I, I do like Casper Rude. Uh oh, I guess I left him out. I should say I left him out. I didn't talk about him with Nico when I did the power rankings. Unforced error. Unforced error. Uh, I don't know, and I don't think that he would have been in my top 10. But uh, I mentioned Hercotch and Nori as two players who were left out of the top 10 who I had to think about. And I would be lying if I told you that I remembered Kasparud and and that I decided not to include him. No, I completely forgot about him. I did. I admit it. So, I mean, look. I looked at the rankings. Like, I never do the power rankings without at least looking at the rankings. You know, I don't really need them, but I, I still look at them just to make sure. And somehow I saw Casper's name. It just, I just forgot about him. I don't know. So um, I still don't think he would have been in the top 10. And let's see how things shake out next week. Uh, the power rankings, they were kind of a fail this week. And I loved having Nico on, and that part was great. That part was awesome. Uh, but I uh, I did those rankings before Montreal started, and then a lot happened, making the power rankings when most of you watched it just not make much sense. So it is what it is. All right, from Han Solo, Alcaraz bested PCB on clay. Sinner beat Alcaraz on grass and hard court. But PCB trounced Sinner in Montreal, meaning isn't Alcaraz much better than PCB? And yet PCB can beat Sinner convincingly. Is Alcaraz just buckling under pressure or is there some te other technical factors or tactical miscalculation involved, thus leading to more pressure? In the highlights of Alcaraz versus Sinner instead of dictating, Alcaraz seems to be reacting. Well, I don't know about that. Watch the Monday match analysis on that match, and I, I kind of break down what happened. Uh, the reason I included this comment is not because I have a lot to say in response to it, other than you're doing tennis math. Don't do tennis math. It doesn't work. It doesn't add up. The uh, the whole like triangle of the triangle that you're creating here between Alcaraz, Sinner, and PCB. I can give you a million examples of when that doesn't make any sense of when, you know, they don't add up because, uh, look, styles, 
there are so many variables there. There are styles and, you know, tactics that are involved here. I do think that PCB is a terrible matchup for Alcaraz. Oh, sorry. The other way around. I think that Alcaraz um, has a ton of advantages over PCB. PCB plays too much from neutral. You don't want to play again. You don't want to play from neutral against Alcaraz. Anyway, um, yeah, don't do tennis math. It doesn't work. You know, surface, time of year, in the calendar, relative form, fatigue. There are too many factors that go into every given match, so you can't do that. From Racket Talk, a couple of questions here. Uh, the first one, as it happened, Medvedev got dumped out in the beginning round in Canada to a very informed Nick Kyrgios. Would it be concerning to you if he doesn't put up a great performance in Cincinnati, perhaps win the title for his chances at the U.S. Open? The other thing that I was thinking about is that sometimes when I look at Daniil's game, I feel like his second serve doesn't do a lot of damage at all and that players can easily pick on it. I saw Nick do it with his backhand quite a bit and Nadal do it in the Australian Open final. I know you mentioned his return position being too deep, but would you say that this is another thing that is a chink in the armor for him at least right now? The second serve used to be horrendous, Medvedev. Even in 2019, even when he was good in 2019, Medvedev's second serve was horrendous. Uh, it's it's much improved now. And when I say horrendous, I'm also like, I'm putting it on the scale of a guy with an excellent first serve and he's six foot six for God's sake. And he used to have a terrible second serve for those factors being true. Uh, it's much better now. I would say it's still not a strength. Yes, it could be better, but the kick serve is just not really his thing. You know, he 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 has one of the better flat serves out there. And, you know, some players are just going to have certain spins that they're more comfortable hitting on their serve compared to others. And for Medvedev, he's not great at, he's not great with the kick serve. It's not great. Uh, but it's not a huge weakness anymore. Um, so I, I can't come down too hard on it. I mean, Met, uh, Kyrgios is one of the best players in the world at using his backhand return to attack second serves. So it's just, it's a very, very tough standard you know, to look at what Nick does and to say, well, that's a problem with your second serve is is not, it's not fair. It's too harsh. Second one is the other question I had was from the last mailbag. Okay. Um, oh, from underrated shots. Yeah, I did the underrated shots mailbag. Uh, one shot that I think is underrated and not talked about much is the Fetter backhand overhead smash. Most players would just run around and hit a forehand smash, but I've often, often seen Roger be able to hit the backhand smash really well at the net. I think pump, some people really underestimate the amount of wrist action. Um, well, first of all, I don't think Federer ever chose to hit a backhand overhead over a conventional overhead because a conventional overhead is just a stronger shot for everybody. However, yes, Federer had a beautiful backhand overhead. Beautiful. And um, it's a shot that there's a technique to it. You know, you can train it. You should practice it. It's important. Uh, a lot of it, like the pace that Federer used to get on, on it, a lot of that is wrist strength. And also just keeping your wrist really loose. So yeah, there's a wrist snapping there, like a backhand wrist snapping that uh, requires a lot of strength and flexibility in the wrist that Federer had. 
Uh, but it's also timing, you know, just like overheads. Overheads are a lot about timing. And uh, that's true on the backhand. And uh, athleticism, you know, you have to launch yourself into the air often to hit that shot. Um, Nadal has a great one too, by the way. From IDC, what's up with Medvedev's return this year? From the eye test, he is uh, getting more aced. Uh, I guess aced more. Doesn't find good depth on the return either, therefore doesn't break that often. Is there anything that contributed to that other than his significantly worse form and some players adding serve and volley tactics to counter his deep returning position? Uh, looking at his last few matches, there are all they are all big servers. Kyrgios, Herkoc, uh, TVR, Von Reithoven, uh, and he couldn't do anything on the return in any of those matches. Uh, okay, so that's the first one. I actually think it's not the return that's the issue. I I think all in all of those cases, Kyrgios, Herkoc, and Von Reithoven, they're actually taking advantage more of his positioning than than the return itself. I uh, I don't see evidence that he's getting aced more. Um, although I could check the stats on that, um, I would doubt I would doubt that that would be true. Uh, but maybe. And like I haven't noticed really anything with the depth on his return. I just think that those are three players in particular and on grass with Herkoc and, and Von Reithoven and Kyrgios where they are going to get forward right away. Uh, maybe not on the serve and volley, but if not on the serve and volley, they are going to take the third shot of the rally and come in behind it. All three of those players were doing that. Uh, Kyrgios, not so much. Uh, Kyrgios just hitting... Uh, going with the serve and volley. And I think it's more of a uh, a positioning problem for him than anything else. Uh, I did check the stats when I read this comment, and Medvedev is uh, 10th in hardcourt break percentage, which is pretty good considering what he brings to the table on his serve. So um, maybe on grass court, he wasn't breaking as much as he wants uh, because of the positioning, but on hardcourt, his numbers still look pretty good. All right, second question. Kyrgios has been playing tons of tennis pre-US Open. Do you think that's a good decision or his body might break down after all those singles and doubles matches? I think what he's shown is uh, he's in he's in the shape to do it. You know, I think that's what the evidence suggests. Uh, eventually, uh, clearly his body broke down. I thought that that was the biggest issue for him in his match with Herkoc is he couldn't, he couldn't put in a good effort. And I, I think he couldn't put in a good effort because he was fatigued. And I, I even think that he's been fatigued before that. I thought he looked tired against Michael Lemur, somewhat tired against Nishioka, but he's just had such a talent advantage in those matches that he could get away with it. And then uh, he totally locked in, uh, had a lot of juice for the Medvedev match, but then he fell flat and he didn't have the effort against Herkoc. Uh, as, as well as Herkoc played and as good as he is as a player, he didn't. So, um, no, I, I think I I think he'll get a couple of days off. He'll get to play Cincinnati, and uh, then he'll get the week off before the U.S. Open. He might be entered in Winston-Salem. I'm sure he'll pull out. I'm sure he'll pull out. Um, yeah, I, it, it seems like we need to treat him like a regular player now that he can play a normal schedule. Uh, what kind of style of play suits U.S. Open balls? There are certain players that don't like those. I believe it was Iga who prefers heavy balls 
and has trouble controlling those light ones. I believe you're thinking of Ash Barty. Her coach, Craig Tizer, said that the balls are too light at the U.S. Open. It is a joke and that Ash will never win and that he's not surprised that Raducanu and Fernandez were in the final. Uh, the U.S. Open, though, is a different case because they use different balls for men and women. So the men's balls have more weight to them than the women's balls. I don't know why they do that. Apparently, they're like the only tournament that does that. I, I haven't fact-checked that, so I don't know if there are other tournaments that also do that. But I know the U.S. Open does that. Um, in terms of the U.S. Open conditions in general, the I guess on the women's side, what we saw last year, if anything, is uh, the kind of hitting through the court was a lot easier if you could control the ball. So I think if you could hit the ball, if you could take the ball very early and redirect down the line a lot, I think that was the most effective way to play at the U.S. Open last year on the women's side. Um, on, but on the men's side, I, I guess just in general, uh, it, it has just been, you know, offensive tennis, lots of serving, you know, serves have been effective. It's been quick. It's been quick starting in 2020, really quick. Um, I still see comments, by the way, sometimes, and I did correct someone in the comment section um, a couple of videos ago. I still see comments calling the U.S. Open slow, and it's just not anymore. It was slow for a while, and it's just not the case anymore. It's fast. So uh, hopefully we can begin to change that perception. Last one here from Ryan. Interesting time for American tennis. One, do you think Tommy Paul could emerge as the top American man? Is his victory over Alcaraz as well as uh, his tournament thus far a statement? And what do you make of Fritz's inconsistency in that horrible match with Tiafo? Which American has the highest ceiling between Fritz Opelka, Paul, Tiafo, Brooksby, Cressy, Korda, and Nakashima? All right, as far as Tommy Paul goes, um, almost, I would almost say that Tommy Paul could emerge as the top American man, it wouldn't shock me. He's capable of that level, but I, I need to see a much higher level of consistency. Tommy Paul has blown me away in the past. His run in Stockholm, the tennis he played in Stockholm, it blew my mind. And I'm just like, whoa, 2022, here we come. Let's keep an eye out for Tommy Paul because if that is the Tommy Paul that we are going to get in 2022... He is going to break into the top 20, and he's going to do it fast. Well, guess what? We didn't get that Tommy Paul. This week, again, it's like, whoa, man, Tommy Paul is good. He will blow you away sometimes with his talent. He is he is as good a mover as they come, pretty much. Uh, his backhand is, is awesome. His serve is great. And the forehand is the X factor. The forehand was the difference this week against Alcaraz and against Marin Cilic. And in the first set against Dan Evans, the forehand was uh, was big and it wasn't missing. And then the forehand will just start missing. And once the forehand starts missing, Tommy Paul can be pinned behind the baseline and he can become a very average player from behind the baseline. Uh, by the way, his volleys are great. So when he can get forward, he's really good. Uh, but he can be underpowered from behind the baseline, and his forehand is not always a reliable weapon. And that's the biggest thing that holds Tommy Paul back. But to me, when the when the forehand is at 
its very best, when it's at kind of the peak of its abilities, Tommy Paul is a nightmare to play against. What do I make of the Fritz inconsistency? Uh, he's been injured, so I wouldn't read too much into it. I really wouldn't. Uh, these conditions should suit him in Canada, so in that sense, it's disappointing. But uh, he's uh, he's just been on and off and on and off in terms of the health, and uh, that's been uh, that's been an issue this year. I mean, he's played really good tennis when he's been healthy, but right now it's just about getting right in time for the U.S. Open. I wouldn't be too concerned. Um, I know it was a bizarre match with Francis, and... Uh, I mean, I was following it and watching a little bit, but I don't have a grasp on on what happened in that match. I don't know if anybody has a grasp on what happened in that match. I would just uh, keep an eye on him for Cincinnati, and I, I think he should do pretty well there. Highest ceiling between all of them. Well, Fritz is just about at his ceiling. I don't know if Fritz is going to get good volleys. If he ever gets good volleys, that's a huge area where, where he can get better. Uh, just the transition game. But other than that, I couldn't see too many parts of Fritz's game being much better than they are right now. So Fritz is almost maxed out. But then the question becomes, are any of these guys top 10 players? Um, you know, the ceiling, I got to incorporate mental here. So I would say Opelka, if you put like Taylor Fritz's brain in Riley Opelka, but we all know it doesn't work that way. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, the highest ceiling is probably Corda. And I have plenty of concerns about Corda, but yeah, he's the highest ceiling. I mean, if, you know, when he can, he could have uh, an elite backhand. His forehand is big. It's just, it sprays too much. Sprays way too much. His volleys are good. His serve has potential. It needs to get a lot better. And uh, he just needs to continue to develop athletically and get bigger and stronger. And he needs to stop getting injured. So, yeah, I mean, look, th there's a lot of stuff for Corda, But I think if everything goes perfectly for Corda, I think he is the highest ceiling among all these guys. It doesn't mean he's going to be the best, though. There's a lot that needs to go right. All right, that'll do it for me. Um so we have, I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. We have semifinals uh, set for the men in Montreal. And I am um, I will bring you some post-match videos tomorrow. I believe, I'm not positive yet if I'm going to be able to do both. But uh, I might do both into one video also, potentially. Uh, Hercotch Rude. I'm fascinated to see the return, uh, the rude return of serve in this one. I feel like it's been way improved. That's why I picked him to beat Felix in the preview because I watched him play Berrettini and Stad. Stad is very fast in terms of the conditions, and I, I thought, wow, I've never seen Rude handle a big serve this well. We're gonna get another look at that against Hercotch. Obviously, Rude from the baseline against Hercotch from the baseline. Rude. Uh, Rude's forehand should be the X factor there. So it's just a matter of can he get in the rallies? Can he uh, can he get Hercotch's serve back into play? That's the interesting part. Uh, Karenia Busta Evans, man, that's an interesting one. That is uh, creativity versus reliability. That is magician versus technician. I have no idea. But Karenia Busta, I mean, both of them have just been played phenomenal tennis. I'm really happy for both of them. Um, Evans, man, what a treat that match against Paul was. What a treat to watch. The variation, I mean, every point looked different. And Karina Busta has just been a killer this week. I mean, talk about 
being a machine, Karenia Busta, a ball machine. The man just does not ever miss. The shot selection does not ever waver. The toughness, the movement, the shot tolerance, it's crazy. Um, and if you drop it short, he'll punish you. The forehand's been on point this week for Karenia Busta also, so I'm looking forward to that one. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.